I was never actually meant to play rugby. I've only got one kidney. Health professionals said, look, listen, dude, you're not supposed to play contact sport for that matter. I'm Frank Horn. Welcome to the Rugby Hive. Welcome to the Rugby Hive. Today's guest is South African legend Frankie Horn. Synonymous for running people over, Horn is one of the most famous forwards to have played on the HSBC World Rugby 7 Series, representing his country for 10 years. Highlights after steamrolling both Rugby Hive co-hosts, Horn became the first player in history to play in 50 consecutive tournaments. It's no wonder they called him Frank the Tank. He was a member of the first ever Blitzbox 7s team to win the series title for South Africa in 2009. Horn also won a gold medal at the 2015 Commonwealth Games against rivals New Zealand. Upon retiring in 2016, he had scored 59 tries and took part in 68 tournaments on the 7 series. In today's episode, we talk about growing up in South Africa, overcoming doctor's orders not to play contact sport, and his second love, the great outdoors. We cover his brilliant 7s career, his 7s dream team, which three forwards are his favourite from the Blitzbox, and why Chris Dry was his best and worst roommate on tour. We discover how Horn fell into coaching rugby and his involvement at the Stellenbosch Academy of Sport, plus one of the best pranks ever pulled by a guest on the rugby hive. Here is South African legend Frankie Horn. He's so dangerous, Freddy Krueger has nightmares about him! Hello and welcome to the rugby hive. I'm Dan Stanford, and despite my South African accent, I was fortunate enough to play rugby for the United States on the Sevens World Series. And I'm Robin McDowell, a former Canadian Sevens international. Back in my playing days, I went head-to-head against Dallin and the USA. For several years, Robin has coached international Sevens for various countries, including Canada and Mexico. He's massively passionate about growing the game across the Americas through his McDowell rugby programs at all levels. I'm currently a commentator for World Rugby, most recently broadcasting the Rugby World Cup in Japan, as well as the amazing Sevens World Series. More than a decade later, we are teaming up to bring you insights from legendary players and coaches from around the world. All legends have a story. The Rugby Hive podcast is here to share it. Welcome to the Hive. Oh, it's more dangerous than climate change. Hello and welcome to episode 13. We take a safari trip down to the Republic of South Africa for one of the more entertaining guests on the Rugby Hive, Blitzbox 7's legend, Frankie Horn a player who competed at 68 consecutive tournaments on the grueling HSBC World Rugby 7 Series. And that stat alone should tell you more about the Iron Man from the Rainbow Nation, a bulldozer. And personally, it was an honor to try tackle the man unsuccessfully, but very thankful that he traded his Blitzbok jersey with me at one of the tournaments. And Robin, the funny thing is those Canterbury jerseys, the Frankie Horn is massive. He's a solid unit, right? I am tiny. I'm about the size of one of his calves and the jersey was skin tight. It barely fit me. It's World Series. It's got to be. It's got to be tight, tight fitting for everybody. And in my playing days, uh, it was not tight fitting. So all the big boys like Frankie could just reel me in and eat me up. But yeah, he's such a class in, individual, and, and now a great friend of mine, one of the colleagues that I, I, I speak with monthly, and just uh, share thoughts on on the game, on developing. And he's he's on a similar path to me in in obviously uh your old stomp grounds but in his part of the world in Stellenbosch and uh I actually was able to send a Canadian kid down there for five six months and, and Peyton Eager from the Cowichan Valley he came back last summer and I had him involved in our camp and he he sat down 40 50 young Canadian kids and told him about you know training 
with and and for the the Ironman in, in that part of the world and just a life-changing experience. Uh, Frankie off the field is is quiet and humble but on the field was was a beast. So my favorite part about episode 13 is as is Frankie's dream believe succeed. Well, he'll touch on some of the challenges he had health-wise. He wasn't ever meant to play rugby and and ultimately how many tournaments did he play? Amazing story. Yeah, that's right. And I think he nicknamed you the doormat, right? A couple of games against Canada. <laughs> <laughs> but listen, it's a complete legend. Uh, but tell us more about what you're doing this week in Canada. What's happening there? Very fortunate to say I've had rugby every day this week. I even had five hours on Sunday doing some skills with some talented kids from, uh, again, from the prairies that are over here, some local Couch and Valley, Vancouver Island kids, drove up local club girls practice, and then mini rugby meeting. So lots of rugby happening and uh, just trying to help build. And then uh, it was was great to see all the smiling faces in the the women's Olympic camp this past week, Tuesday, Thursday, uh, both the coaches and of course the the girls. And I tell you what, when when the World Series gets back going, they're going to have their hands full with Canada because they've been putting in work. They are bigger, faster, stronger, and even some of their set moves look look that much cleaner so really really impressed to see the the talent coming through and got to be back on the field with it with uh, my old stomping grounds university of victoria again national champions uh, earlier this year and the infamous doug tate and we had a couple other guest coaches nate hiriyama and, and and isaac k both proud alumni so it's really special for me to have some of these these athletes that i've been working with over the last number of years small town canadian kids now training and, and working with uh, Hiriyama and guys like Isaac Kay that are that are still carving. So, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. What I want to say though, firstly, is that you sent me a couple of stalkerish photos of Isaac Kay, <laughs> and now I know it was actually real. You were coaching with him, so it was totally German. You weren't following him around, and then secondly, social media wise, I really enjoyed your interview on t- on TV. But apparently, it didn't happen this week or past week. No, it was it was a throwback from uh, from a year ago, uh, National Coaches Week with Astrid Baker, the one of the top soccer coaches in Saskatchewan. But uh, yeah, I was always told I had a face for radio, so I snuck on camera for one one opportunity. Well, pal, this side, very nice. We've enjoyed the forest. The, the leaves are changing colors, which means the fall is here. But it also means winter's coming close by, which is not great for uh, me personally, who spent you know my half my life on the beach in Cape Town and then the other half in Los Angeles carving up with the uh, beach box on that side. So again, if I don't make it through this winter, good luck with the hive and take it to the next level. I'm just as soft as you, although I'm from the great white Northwest North and uh, all we have to deal with a bit of rain. So I spent 10 years in proper Canada on the Canadian prairies where it's minus 40, minus 50. And, and that's, that's actually not too bad. It's, it's when the winds pick up to 60, 70 and it's minus 50, you got to go warm up your car. Uh, lots of fun. But if I can survive uh, at 104 pounds soaking wet, if I can survive proper Canadian w- winter for a decade, you know, you just grow that big beard in again and you'll get your Frankie Horn outfit on and you'll be just right. I'll be, I'll be ready to go. Safari time this side. Let's crack on with the, <laughs> let's crack on with some rugby news here. I really enjoyed the HSBC World Rugby 7 Series Awards that happened this past week. And of course, our favorite clowns, Carl Tanana and Sean Maloney on the virtual award ceremonies. And then a cool opportunity. We know the British and Irish Lions are touring South Africa in 2021, and that's going to be epic in July and August. Sold out events. But I've partnered with a company that basically has access to tickets to any of the games. And of course, they'll be able to help with packages, safaris, flights, everything else like that. So direct message me. We'll get you there and we'll see you in Africa for an absolute rip snorter. We'll be crunching on Biltong, my friend, and watching and speaking to some of our Blitzbok legends as well. But of course, before we get there, we're going to get a quick definition from you, Robin, on those two. Biltong. Uh, the first time I ever tried Biltong, I think it was in the George South Africa airport 
first time in, in, in Africa. And this gentleman said, are you the Canadian team? And we were like, yeah, he's like, do you want some biltong? And we were hungry because we just got off like a, I don't know, 80 hour flight and we need anything. And I'm like, what is it? Cause I, I would just assumed it was a tongue of something of some kind of African animal. Uh, not that I would be opposed to it. And I didn't want to disrespect this gentleman. And he's like, no, no, it's, it's like beef jerky for you uh, North Americans. So I uh, tasted it, loved it. And I still don't know what it is. And then uh, I, I was also trying to ask Dallin, what, what's a, what's a Blitzbach? I have no idea. We all pretend like we know what that is, but we don't exactly know. So please tell our North American listeners what both those are. Yeah, so in South Africa, the springbok is is the the national animal, if you will. It's uh, like a gazelle running in the wild, jumping, springing, goose-stepping everybody. And so the national rugby team, the 15-a-side team, has always been called the springboks. The seven-a-side, they thought, well, we'll use the same emblem. We'll put that on our jersey. But to differentiate between the two sides, we need to call ourselves something else. So they thought, well, we obviously love the Springbok. So why don't we, you know, we're much faster and we're stepping people and sevens is a quicker game as well. So we'll call ourselves the Blitzbox. And Blitz comes from the word to storm, like the Germans did in World War II, Blitzkrieg. And so they got this Blitzbox. And that's what they use these days. Well, I'm going to, the Canadians should be the Blitz Canuck. What do you think? Does that roll or no? It, it, it's not quite off the tongue, you know, and again, you've got, you've got to use what's, what's around your area. I mean, the Springbok would freeze there in Canada, if you will. <laughs> now, listen, I want to quickly give a quick shout out as well to a flashback that was on my social media this week. Verity Explains, one of her Rugby World Cup episodes from uh, 2019, had 35,000 views, 500 shares. And I was like, why is this one more popular than the other ones? Well, firstly, she had correct in saying that out of that pool, Ireland, Japan would make the quarterfinals. But then she saw Samoa in that pool and said, you know what, Samoa's going to win the whole bloody Rugby World Cup. My question is, at what time in the morning did she make those <laughs> those uh, statements? <laughs> Put it on the record, I will always back Verity. Whatever she throws her money at, I'm, I'm on board. She's a big fan of yours too, so that's bloody brilliant. Now, what thank yous and shout-outs do you have for this week? Yeah, we're wrapping up National Coaches Week, where we recognize coaches, Canadians, uh, 99% of sports in Canada are, are volunteer. So I just want to wrap up by, by highlighting some of the athletes I gave shout outs to on MacDuel Rugby. So we reached out to stakeholders in all regions of Canada and they put a few developing, up and coming, rising star coaches. Uh, first of all, Sarah Shaw from Oshawa, Ontario. Sherry Spence from the Couch and Valley on Vancouver Island. Chelsea Ross, nominated by Graham Moffitt, legendary Graham Moffitt in Edmonton, Alberta. And she just had a baby last week. Congratulations, Chelsea and her family. Brett Cannenberg from Regina, Saskatchewan. And Sonny Reyna, the legendary Kiwi that's, uh, that's blowing up the game across Ontario. He highlighted three athletes. One from Quebec City that travels to Ottawa. Marie-Eve Gauvin. Michaela Haley from Ottawa. Miles Donahue from Ottawa. And Tyler Leggett, who you'd remember from the Rugby Town 7s and Dubai 7s. He develops a number of athletes. And then one of his stars is now young U20 Canada player Kevin Burkis. He's had a bit of a knee surgery, so he's been doing a lot of coaching in the last few years. So shout out to them. And then a couple of my favorite coaches in Canada I want to give a shout out to is uh, Doug Tate, former Canada player. Canada coach, director at the University of Victoria, and, and John Tate, obviously uh, the current head of high performance for the women in Women's World Series. And of course, on the far east coast of Canada, coming from Nova Scotia, 
is Emma Delory, nominated by Jack Hanratty. Jack Hanratty, U20 Canada women's coach, also assistant coach for senior women. Although she's she's growing the game in Nova Scotia, she's also the senior women's 15s manager. So she's at the World Cup next year, but she is a hardworking, developing coach. So thank you to all those coaches across Canada, across the US for all you do every day. Stunning to see that. Really is awesome to highlight those, those folks that have put so much time and effort in and mostly on a volunteer basis as well to bring the next generation of players coming through. That's absolutely fantastic. Well, on this side, we just want to say it's been brilliant to see the Women's Eagles supporting Chris Brown, episode 12. Our guest there. We want to thank our partners, Yeti, Gilbert Rugby Canada, Rugby Coffee, and we will have a new Biltong partner coming soon. We'll wait for those samples to arrive before we give them the thumbs up. And then if you want to get mentioned or want to get a shout out, make sure to direct message us. You can catch us at Rugby Hive on Twitter and Facebook, at MyRugbyHive on Instagram. It is the legend, Lutzbach himself, time for episode number 13. Frankie, it looked like you're in a real lockdown there. The beard is going strong. The hair is all over the place. How are you coping, my friend? How are you and the family in this new crazy world? Oh, we, well, we're not really allowed to leave our houses for shopping. So um, I can't even go buy myself a basketball to create a Wilson. So I'm trying to replicate the whole castaway thing. <laughs> but yeah, no, going well, going strong, healthy, everything's fine. Yeah, just bored out of my mind without rugby. Kids driving me insane. Uh, yeah, getting a bit cabin fever. But yeah, all trying to make the best out of it. Eh? That's good to hear. I know without rugby, there's so many of us who are suffering in a different way, you know. Well, Frankie, let, let's go back to you growing up in South Africa. Tell us about about your childhood and some of the sports that you enjoyed playing? If we go back, I mean, I wasn't like the most active guy. I think sport for me was pretty much either something that could benefit rugby or touch rugby. <laughs> so I did a bit of, did a bit of track. Um, wasn't the fastest guy in school. Also wasn't the biggest though. So I was quite skinny in school. So uh, my trick year, at least my, my last year um, of high school. But yeah, everything was just little that I know that was going to benefit Stevens at the end of the day, but everything was just either touch rugby or just track and field, a bit of javelin throwing, a bit of shot putting, and the skinnier guys would always beat us because they got better technique and we like just rely on strength and <laughs> the three brain cells was operating there. But yeah, it's um, it was just that. And then uh, was okay at school. Um, didn't do uh, as much as I could have done at, at high school level. But then after that, club rugby, I think I was, I was playing hooker at schoolboy level. So, and then uh, at club, club rugby, uh, I actually played for my first team at school on Saturday mornings, play for this high school. And then Saturday afternoons, you play third team for the club. And then second team on the bench for the club. And then on the bench for the first team for the club. And you're 18. So you pretty much did like, what, two matches or three matches on a Saturday if you, with all the guys trying to take breaks and then cramps would start sitting in, but you loved it. And then uh, found my passion at Flanker. I think I was really liking a little bit of space and a little bit of movement. Not that I didn't like the tight stuff. I just, at that point, didn't have the frame for it. You were stocky, you were strong, but you didn't have like that excess bulk. And then, um, yeah, and time went by and then slowly progressed into and found out that there was this wonderful game called Sevens and just found my feet, found my feet in it and then... And there we go. That's how it went. <laughs> what, other, what other hobbies did you do? Like, tell us about some of your outdoor passions. Everything, literally. Um, love fishing. Uh, love spear fishing. Love kayak fishing. Uh, love hunting. Found a bit of passion there. Scuba diving. Uh, I, I pretty much tried all of it. Try to minimize the risk. Because once you're a professional rugby player, at some point, you can't take on extreme sports or quad biking or this or that. So they kind of ban you on a lot of the stuff. But the stuff that they don't ban you is actually quite dangerous. I mean, you can get charged by some animal or shoot yourself in the foot or do something stupid on the water but uh, we, we did it hey eh? it's fun it keeps you active um it's a different realm when you like uh, what's the fishing side of it alone it's just and you would know robin it's just to like just chill it's just you and your thoughts trying to figure out stuff i think pretty much the same passion so yeah a lot of that 
lot of online gaming, fair bit of a big fan of Call of Duty. So if, 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 if I don't get in trouble for spending too much time in it, I was a, a bit of an addict. I think by when I first started playing Seven Cheese, I used to crunch in between the mornings just before I had to leave for training, squeeze in, play at night till two, three o'clock, and then yeah, I'd go sleep and then try and get enough rest for, for training, but try all of that funky stuff. But uh, a lot of little things, eh? um, but yeah, that, that should be the main passions, the main um, stuff. For Some contracts have banned uh, rugby players from skiing, right? So we had Chris Wiles on the show, so they, they couldn't do that. It was dangerous. So what, what was in your contract actually that, that was worded that you couldn't do outside? Man, water sports was the big one. Uh, water sports, extreme sports, which is like everything from BMX and motorcycles and everything else. I think Paul True at a point, like we had motorcycles. It was three, three guys in the squad that had motorcycles at a point. Um, Marius Skouan being one and myself and a guy called Chase Minar. And uh, Paul came to me one day and he's like, no, 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 listen. You need to get rid of it. So I was like, oh man, I just bought the thing. And then and uh, he was like, no, you have to get rid of it. So my dad actually got a pretty sweet gift for his birthday. It wasn't an expensive bike, but it was uh, at least something that he could score. So just because from the risk factor, because he was just heavy on the guys, starting guys, um, just not losing. I think back then when we also started in the dark ages of sevens, you and I met then, it was also like just the guys that they, they didn't have the, the amount of talent they had or exposed to today, but it's become an Olympic sport, everything, you, you pretty much had to have this island and all these players that you have there, like build your own little island. So the players that you do have access to, you have to build these guys up to the, the, the seventh athlete that it is. Myself, Sicil Africa, these guys came, we came through the emerging Springbok setup where we went to identification camps. You played for two years on the emerging side before you even had a crack at the main squad. I mean, also back then you were like guys when I started in 2006, just by camps. Back then we didn't have bases. Uh, you just came for talent ID camps and then literally just rock up for a pre-departure camp. I think most of the guys did the same. Al Caravelli and these guys did the same back then. So you literally rock up a week or two before a tournament, train together and then fly for the two tournaments. And then it was whack back then what we did, like experiment with food, habits, everything. I mean, the first time I came in, these guys made us eat. You think you had to eat so healthy. It's like green, it's just green salads and chicken breast and all these things. And, uh, and you shed weight. Eh? And then all of a sudden you can't train anymore because you don't eat a normal life. Your whole training capacity is not based on that. So experimented with a lot of stuff, but the guys that you did have in, in, in your camp, you had to keep these guys fit and also just retain that knowledge. So they try to do everything in their, in their power to just, a, also for contract insurance. I think the guys got a lot of injuries back then because guys just do stupid things. Skydiving, all sorts of nonsense. Skysurfing, big, big thing. Uh, I think it's biggest contributor to ACL's current in modern day. Uh, doctors are loving it. They're like just promoting kite surfing all around. It's like, hey guys, yeah, dear, go kite surf. I'll, I'll, I'll be a doctor. <laughs> so yeah, I think that was just the main thing just to look after the guys they had back then. How did you originally get identified for the, for the Blitzbox Sevens program? Man, uh, Robin, it's a funny thing. I was playing, um, I, I was obviously in the Bull and Cavaliers where they set up, started there with the under-19s and then uh, 2002, under-19s, three, under-20s. And then my under-20, uh, was pretty much, we had a regional club competition of just sevens. So Wellington Rugby Club, my, my hometown, we had decided to put in a team. I mean, and I was lucky enough to crack the nod. And then we played and we, we actually won the tournament. And then uh, and there was just one of the guys that, 
just did the, produce the goods. And then uh, I got drafted up into the uh, Boland Provincial Sevens team. And from there on, played in the Provincials. We won the Provincials, what, three years in a row? But we had a really loaded squad. I mean, um, Ramford Dazel played, uh, Rainer Benjamin played, a couple of gifted guys who was part of that setup. So, and then from there on, just, okay, cool, you in a camp, you had to fly to Bloemfontein or drive up with the minibus to Bloemfontein and like in a camp in nowhere. I mean, we this one day we had a camp and a mini tournament from a camp straight into a tournament in close to Sun City. And uh, <clears throat> the guys rocked up in this bus. A funny story. We rocked up in this bus, two mini buses with guys coming in. And there's a, a lot of the um, black guys in, in the squad comes from townships. And these guys, they were never exposed to a lot. But um, well, at that point, myself, I, I there wasn't exposed. I was just in Wellington all my life. So we rocked up in this field and they had like these old bushy hedges, but nice, neat looking field. And the guys started, okay, guys, you've got two minutes to stretch and warm up. And yeah, you know, we jogged on the field and this lion roared. We, we shot it ourselves. Oaks were running. It looked like one of these movies where the guy sitting on the bus closed the minibus and the rest of the guys like finding our spots to hide. Some guys on the roof, some guys, I was just like, oh man, I'm the slowest here. I'm going to get chowed. <laughs> I need to do something. So I climbed in a dustbin and, uh, and then the groundskeeper came and said, no, 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 man, calm down, calm down. It's a, it's a lion breeding farm. It's just neighboring, neighboring the, 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 the field here and that's the only spot. And we're like, no, man, you can't do that. And every time we started training and this thing, just like let out a roar. Oaks were just like, well, where, where, where? <laughs> so yeah, that's what we, um, we kind of got into these camps and then uh, I think it was involved for two years and those things before I actually cracked the nod. It's a, a hell of a program, a good for just basics and stuff. Uh, and I think it's kind of lacking in the modern day because a lot of guys just kind of get into the setup quite quite quickly. It's not that appreciation of, of what the guys in the past went through. I mean, you very seldomly find lifers in the game anymore. I think it's, a, it's very few guys finishing up. I mean, for SA7s, it would be Sicil Africa and these guys, Chris Dry, Branco de Priya, those guys would be the lifers, the last remaining few that would probably be there for, for however long. I mean, Vanna Cook and these guys, we pretty much signed up from under 19. These guys are going to finish up. I think it was pretty much their last season, unless they sign another deal for Olympics. But they're going back to other unions. So yeah, it's a it's a big appreciation for those type of camps and clinics because it kind of got guys hooked to, to sevens. Let's talk about your debut in a South African sevens jersey. When was that tournament? And, and can you talk through that weekend? What was going through your mind and, and your experience? It was a hell of a lot of emotions. More more fear, I think, uh, and panic because you, would, you didn't want to be the guy that stuffs it up for everyone. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I think my first crack of the nod was against in Dubai in 2007 uh, against Kenya. The only thing I remember from that match was that was the most tired I ever got in my whole entire life. Just because you were trying to do everything you can in the two minutes that you had on the field and uh, and you're running around and chasing guys and, and, and the Kenyans were just all physical and big back then. It still is. But yeah, you just try to do everything and then the guys are like, okay, hold, slow down. You, you're trying to do too much here. You can't ruck here and ruck on that side. You need to stay in the structure. So, But yeah, a lot of pride I think um, and despite how far I got I think the aim was always just to try and see how far I could get um, and how far I could go um, I mean make you guys on the circuit there outside of getting on the back of a, a wild bucking bronco uh, meeting you is was just as painful yeah I would second that as well I think I still have bruises on my on my arms trying to tackle you and then I think I had your, your footprints on the back of my shirt still Frankie thanks so much for that Frankie, uh, you had the opportunity to lead South Africa on a number of occasions. 
What did that mean to you and your family getting that honor? It was a bit weird, um, to be honest. I, I think the honors was never meant to be mine. It was just a very unfortunate season for us. I mean, we lost Carl Brown very early in Dubai against England. I think, uh, I don't know if it was Marcus Watts or someone that tackled him from the side. And it was just a, a poor handoff and they threw their weight onto his ankle and then his ankle snapped and Carl was captain back then. And then Paul Dalport was second in line and Paul Dalport got injured in George, I think it was back then, which means the only guy that was experienced enough or captain enough was myself. So it was a very up and down season, uh, although it was great privilege to, to, to captain the side and, uh, and it was stuck with a, a lot of guys. It was a very up and down season for us. I mean, we, one, one tournament we went to New Zealand, I remember it was the, the second, the third leg. We went to uh, Wellington and then uh, we ended up playing in the bowl segment. We lost to someone in the first match. Second match, we won. And the third match, we had to play Kenya. And I mean, just we scored four tries, but we didn't convert a single try. And uh, if Philip Sneijman listens to this, he's probably going to think, oh, man, I cost this thing. But it wasn't his fault. I remember that day, Paul Dalport and Chris Dry had a full-on fight on the field because Chris went into a ruck, which he shouldn't have gone into. And while these two were standing on each side and just bickering, Collins and Jerry just tapped the ball and ran straight between the two of them, scored under the post and converted and then sunk us 21-20. So um, whole segment for us. So And then the following weekend we went to Vegas we won the tournament next weekend in Hong Kong bowl segment Argentina pipped us and then the weekend of that we won the tournament again and then it was just back and forth and I think the last leg in Glasgow we were fifth on the ranking and then uh, we won the tournament and then we came second so but New Zealand obviously had a, pro a score margin of I don't know how many points, but between second place and fifth place was literally a two points difference. And then, uh, yeah, just a insane, insane year. But then also the same year, we got nominated for the HSBC Dream Team. So it was a mixed bag of sweets, but a very privileged and, and honored to to have captained uh, the Sevens team. And how would you describe the culture of the team when you played for the Blitzbox? We really pride ourselves on our culture. I mean, uh, if, if you listen to any chat, Neil Powell and Kyle Brown and these guys would ever give, it's, it's just culture first. The guys live and breathe. I think it's it's one of the big things. And even when, when I was just came into the setup we we had to hardwire any individual that's coming into the program just to buy in you uh, you're not me that's played 68 tournaments at, and the guy that's played zero they, there's no difference between us you don't pull rank you don't do this you don't you actually the senior set the example we're the guys that fill up the water bottles we're the guys that set the tone and if a guy doesn't understand where a lot of squads and this is one thing i really hated from 15s was there's so many clicks and groups small little groups and this group guys are the hunters and those guys are the drinkers and those guys are the golfers and these guys do this and that so and that's the thing i really hated about 15s despite it being a brilliant being a brilliant game i mean uh, purist at heart as well but it's the one thing that i really despised about the game and then I, when i came to sevens we had the opportunity to just restructured this whole thing so we kind of went into the way where um any guy because when i came into the squads in 2006 nobody gave you any input you had no you, you had no idea what to do you were just there and on ability but no one told you hey this, should, this is what your job should be i'm giving you all my knowledge and then you didn't do that so you you had a very small margin of actually making the squad and what we decided when when obviously we were a little bit more senior players we're like, hey guys, this is the way forward. If a new guy comes into the squad, you give him all your knowledge. You give him all the cheats, all the clues, all the tips, everything else you can do to just enrich him 
uh, once you enriched him and gave him everything, now it becomes a fair competition for my position. You still have to be good enough to take my position, but the better you get, the better, harder you push me to retain my spot. So we all get better down the line. But in turn, it makes the squad better. So if I picked up the injury, that guy, I know he's capable, he has the knowledge, he's got everything in his toolbox just to go do the job. And I think that's what makes the, the SC7s team like really consistent despite us not even having i don't want to say it so hardly but it's it's we don't have access to all the best players and i think very few teams do but we despite our small size and everything else we probably are the smallest size side on the circuit we produce the goods we try hard to be at the top, at least the top three year in year out so and, and that's just all due to culture just guys buying in guys just sticking to each other yeah frankie one thing i would say that stood out for me playing against you in that era 2007 to 2009 that time period was your defense every single time we were tackled by you guys and it doesn't matter if it was you know a small player like Cecil Africa or getting smashed by you the hits just kept coming and it was you just you couldn't catch your breath talk about being frantic out there it was like we didn't know what to do so you you've set a lot of records my friend you became the first player in the series to play in 50 consecutive tournaments and you obviously had a long career spanning uh, all the way to 2016 what memories stand out to you as, as some of your favorites oh there's so many eh? you can always list the, obviously the tournaments you've really done well i think um obviously our first circuit win i think the most big one for us was our first george win uh, i think that was one of the favorites just because we've never won there it's it pretty much george and Port Elizabeth, to an extent, became uh, pretty much home turfs for New Zealand just because of the local community following them. Uh, they do back them. They like the style of brand. Oh, and you can say it's a political thing down the line if you really want to go that way for some regions. For the main sake, they play a brilliant style of rugby. I think when, when the first year we I came to the circuit, uh, 2007, New Zealand had an unbeaten streak of 48 to- games that they would have won. If we didn't stop them in the final in, 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 in Adelaide, they would have won 48 matches in a row. So uh, then the year after that, we said, okay, cool. We set ourselves a little bit of a, a, a goal. We wanted to be the number one team in three years' time. We wanted to win the circuit. We actually started that process in 2007, and uh, um, we flew up a week earlier to Oz and played in the Darwin tournament. And then uh, we had a meeting in, in, in Sydney and just a long chat and just laid out this three-year plan. Player-driven, of course. Uh, Paul True was instrumental in the whole thing. Neil Powell and these guys were all involved. Ramford Dazel, the whole shebang. The whole Sevens management pretty much now. Mario Skuma and all these guys. We all laid out this three-year plan and we achieved it in year two. We came second in 2007 on the circuit and then in 2008, nine season we 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 won the tournament uh, we won the circuit so um, and that first george win was just like something special and then obviously commonwealth and 2014 that's also what a standout but not so much about the tournament we didn't have a good track record of winning once off game um tournaments or matches commonwealth really sucked for us world cup sucked for us those type of once off tournaments we never did well in but came uh, 2014 in commonwealth and glasgow there was just this whole team vibe just because maybe we lived in all that community housing thing uh where the guys just wreaked havoc and Neil Powell called me in one night to say listen what are you guys doing I said well this is what we do in a hotel every time but now we're just all in one big house so <laughs> we, you guys don't sleep and this is that's happening I said well this is what happens <laughs> you guys on your own separate room you don't have no idea what's happening so this is what happens now you have a first hand but pretty cool we won the tournament and that was just one of the cool memories uh, of that so those two stand out for me um in my career and just for some of those aspiring athletes out there what, what are some of the setbacks that you had as a player coming up and and throughout your career that you had to overcome man quite a few to be actually honest i was never actually meant to play rugby i've only got one kidney health professional said look listen dude you're not supposed to play contact sport for that matter and then i met this whack urologist 
way back and he was just like hey man do what do what you want your body will tell you when to stop just listen to your body and i was like oh, okay cool and just went for that advice and then uh down the line fought through everything i mean i've also had injuries despite consecutive 68 tournaments i was just lucky enough to have injuries either out of season or the very last game of the season i think the 2013 season i had to get a, a, a shoulder repair and the last match against usa i was a bit selfish tried to do too much and then kept the ball for too long and then when, it, when i should have passed i didn't pass and then one guy snuck up from behind and tackled me and i fell awkwardly on the shoulder and then i just heard this crunchy noise i'm like oh man that can't be good got up and the next scrum i couldn't lift my arm so i told matt hawkins i said just grab my arm and matt hawkins was like what i said grab my arm and he grabbed my arm and, he <laughs> and then uh, it went on and then i got a ball again uh, and i passed and i was battling this thing and i knocked the ball on and the, the tackle again it just fell awkwardly next scrum and i told him hey man do it then he was like no man you have to go off i said well just one more scrum <laughs> and then he grabbed the arm again we went on and then after that i came off i said no nah, this is not going to work so let's just get, get off i think my last season i also i broke a couple of fingers i had a couple of tears and muscular stuff but um nothing really bad i think 2016 was my bogey year just in front of the olympics i uh, picked up that serious ankle injury in in vino del mar in chile also very last game also did a very lazy handoff thought i got away from a guy and wanted to hand him off and then uh, he just grabbed hold of my arm and just chucked his whole weight on my leg and then ankle was staring at the crowd and i was running still towards the post and uh didn't end well. Pretty much put me out for Olympics. I had a four-month stint where I had to try and qualify for Olympics. Unfortunately, didn't do that. I picked up a little bit of complications with um, foot was a bit flat, muscles fell flat. So uh, we tried our best and uh, didn't work. So my last tournament was 2016 in Rome, but it was good because Bangkok came back from uh, ACL injury, Branko de Prea came back. So I had these youngsters to just guide them through their whole rehab process. And they went on to Olympics. Myself and Stefan Dippenauer went to do the standby squad of the Olympics. But that was all right. That was, that was fine for me. So, um, yeah, I didn't have didn't have any not no injuries but uh i mean just for guys it's just it's not the severity of the injury it's your mindset towards the injury i mean i think vanderkock is a classic example and i was fortunate enough to be with him in rehab to help him guide through his process i my injury was they asked me for what's my goal i said listen i want to try and qualify i need to get to the last two legs of the circuit and they said okay it's an achievable goal it's a hard goal but it's achievable and vanderkock injured his leg in dubai so he was operated first week of december and then uh, he had to do a nine-month ACL injury in six months. So just to order to be eligible for that. So we helped and pushed each other. And then we had our upsets and downsets. And uh, one day it's up and then it's down. And then he's miserable. And I'm grumpy. And then we carry on. But we guided each other through it. And he actually made the Olympic squad. Uh, and that was phenomenal. Just to get a guy like that back on his feet and within six months. So everything is possible as long as you just put your mind to it. I mean, you just have to have that passionate energy to just to go forward every day. It's just that fight get back on your feet just go just go just go so some stuff is obviously worse than others some injuries is it's not child's play so normally it's six weeks or six months or 12 weeks for that matter so you can break it down to that but i think if the guys are positive about an injury you can pretty much get back it's how you attack that rehab segment segment um and how hard you push in it that that'll get you back on your feet in rugby you are going to get injured no matter who you are there's very few guys that do escape that if ever uh, you always have some form of soft tissue or some serious injury it's just the name of the game you are not going to be without injuries but you have to just push through it and once you get there just make the best of it the interview i always tell the boys in my programs is the the end of your rugby career is one tackle away <laughs> it's a it's as simple as that so and just make the best of your time because then someone else will just carry the flag and go further well it's a testament to to your career and your mindset with how long you you played the game, especially at your size and, and, and the style of play that you played. And, and that's, that kind of 
leads me to my next question. You were one of the fiercest players to ever play on the World 7 Series. What was your mindset like in preparation for games to be able to play at that level? In the beginning, I always referred to as the dark ages of sevens. And, and again, attest to that. I mean, you always look at these videos of Wasali Sarabi and these guys, and then uh, they just would goose step and go and then burn all seven guys because there was no structure in defense. It wasn't to the point where it was today. So back then it was, I wouldn't say it was easy, it was hard in its own way because you, I think just before I started playing, very few guys would remember this. I think in 2002, 2001, these guys still had to, you have to nominate your three players beforehand, before they can go on the field. You only have three subs and then they adjusted to, you can pick any three, but you still had 20 minute finals. And your training was adapted to it accordingly. Back in the day, we trained much harder. I think, Dallin, you guys can, with Al Caravelli and these guys, you know, everyone used to get together and bitch and moan about how hard they train. I mean, All Blacks with Chichen, same thing. They used to just run up and we're like, oh, these guys are crazy. And then we get back home and then we also, people say, hey, you guys are crazy. So everyone is, it was just crazy back then. It was easier, uh, a little bit easier back then because defense wasn't structured as much. You could just pick a gap or someone could just create something and one guy would just run through. Uh, I think teams in Hong Kong, normally you would get like a Russia, not the same Russia as now, but you can bump two guys in a, in, in a sequence. You can, uh, William Ryder stepped seven guys. I mean, he stepped the whole seven Springbok team in one go, like just step all seven guys. First time I've seen that in my life. Uh, nowadays, you wouldn't get that because the defensive structures are just so good. So back then it was a little bit easier, but also as time progressed, you had to adapt yourself. I think year one, year two, I was just a wrecking ball. Just get the ball run. It was just told to me, you, you, you would specifically order like, hey, you just need to get the ball, you run. You don't need to pass. Uh, a lot of guys on the circuit, or guys even, I mean, Dave Clancy from UCLA now and Chicago Lions, he used to mock me all the time. He's just like, God, oh, you can't pass. I said, well, I was told not to pass. <laughs> it's a different thing. Despite I couldn't pass to my right when I started the circuit. So you just looked up and a guy was just that meter too far. And you're like, ah, it was seven meters away. It's like, no, I'm just going to run. <laughs> so, um, but then you had to, you had to adapt your, your style of play because every year guys would either figure out, hey, this guy can only handle from his one side or he can only step from the one foot. So as you progress and age, you had to kind of reinvent yourself. At the very end, I was a bit more of a playmaker and a bit of a wrecking ball. You have to kind of be both so that defensive guys know if you, well, they can't sit off just one guy because this guy, one guy's not going to stop you. So two guys have to commit. If two guys commit, then you become a distributor. So if, if, if one guy was there, then you take him on. So... You're also seeing space and adjusting to players. And that just comes with knowledge. The more you play, the better you get at it. So, yeah, I, th I think it's, it was just a little bit easier. Nowadays, it's hard. I mean, you guys all have the stats from World Rugby. I mean, the amount of passes is insane. I mean, every, there's a try scored every 73 seconds. I mean, that's a hell of a long time to defend. Sometimes you have to defend two minutes. And uh, I think the longest play in last year's circuit was two minutes and 46 seconds. I mean, that's three minutes to defend. That's a hell of a long time. You don't think of it. Uh, it's, a, it's a standard size commercial. For, for between super rugby matches but nowadays it's just it's just insane uh, guys have to be more smarter your return to play is much more quicker the skills have to be much more uh, smoother you can literally compare and you you can't really compare one generation to another generation because the set of rules were different I mean I saw a video the other day where we uh, I literally had Ben Gollings around the neck I choked him out to let him drop the ball nowadays you can't even aim your hand like slightly higher than the guy's shoulder, then it's like, no, yellow card, goodbye. And so the rules have changed for just safety measures. One, great. But yeah, it's, it has adapted this style of play. Teams are getting fitter. Teams are getting thinking faster. Your type of sevens player has to be a fast thinker, has to be have multiple skills. You can't just be a wrecking ball unless you're really effective at it. So even a Danny Barrett or these guys, when he came to the circuit to compare to what he is now, also become smarter because you know teams will just gun you down. Three guys would commit to you. So if you can't make the pass, get it away. So yeah, you have to adapt. Uh, and I 
I think that's just what I did. And that's also what helped me stay in the game for longer. Yeah, and I love your nickname, Frank the Tank. You were certainly that wrecking ball that when you had the ball, we knew we had to tackle you. So you've had a chance to play with a lot of South African sevens players over the years. I'm going to put you on the spot here and to select three players that make your forward pack players that you played with or against in your era. Yeah, you're really putting me on the spot. Um, (laughs) Well, if I had to pick three now, three forwards at least, it'll probably be, um, I'll probably have to go with Chris Dry. Just because he's a pure workhorse, uh, makes hell of a lot of tackles, good line-out guy, uh, everything else. You probably have to go, it's, it's very tight between Kwaha and Kyle, I have to say. Kwaha just brings the other dynamic, but Kyle just years of experience. Also back then when myself and Kyle used to play together a lot, we were just really effective with kickoffs and all these type of things. So good guy, good leader, everything else. And then obviously lastly, probably Phillips Neyman, just because of his tactical news. The guy is very clever at breakdowns, very smart, very quick, also intelligent player. So, yeah, that will probably be my three forwards. I don't know if you want more. <laughs> no, well, listen, we're going to ask you another follow-up, right? So that, that's epic. I remember playing okay. against all those forwards so good. Now, you have to select your dream team from the era that you played against. So this is not including South African players. Everybody you yeah. played against, your dream team, your three forwards and four backs. Give it a go. Jeez, okay. Um, man, I like the big boys. So I'd have to go with um, Saramayo Baratu. Him and... Uh, What's it? Fao Saliba, a la forty Fao Saliba, and then uh, and then DJ Forbes. I, I'm very tempted to say what was the guy from England, uh, Damu. Yeah, Damu uh, Damu in the, the restarts. Yeah. Wow. I mean that, that guy. So it's a bit of compromise. I mean DJ just being the legend that he is, and uh, when the workhorse, I think probably bulk of his tries he scored just of supporting. I think so. And then you have the two wrecking balls on each side. I mean those two comparing each other is like it was it's hell in the office. Then I I still believe of all my all time favorite is is Tomasi Kama. I do believe he was the they called him the little general back then, and he gave us hell in the office. I then have to go. It's a tight race between Ben Gollings. What's the guy from Samoa? Um, is it Lola Louis? Uh, yes, Lola Louis. It's a tight race between those two, so I'll probably put Ben there. But uh, stick it for Ben. Stick it for Ben. Ben is just an all-time legend. And then, then it's a tough race as well in the backs. Yo, you've got so many guys. I think Perry Baker definitely win. I have to go with Perry just for his finishing abilities. And then also center-wise, it's a it's 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 a tough one. I, I don't really know. It's it's probably um what was the guy from uh it's New Zealand. Was it Zar Lawrence out that era or after him? It was Zar's era. Zar was yeah. a good contender for that as well. But um, Rakabula. Yeah, Lottie. Yeah, yeah Lottie. Yeah. Just workhorse. If you pick up the trend that I'm going, yeah, it's a lot of workhorses. But they, you, you probably do a lot of guys injustice. A lot of the Fijian boys probably be upset because there's so many good guys on the circuit. I mean, if you have to go, Gomez Cora, I mean, I played against these guys. You had a lot of guys. I mean, Tom Van Dell in his time. There's Dan Norton. I mean, you, you have to just... But yeah, in any case, that will probably be my squad. Uh, you could probably pick three more squads that can contest that squad. But just I have to stick with the workhorses and, uh, and just go with the big powerhouses. So yeah, that'll be my squad. It'll probably be formidable. Uh, but you have guys like James Rodwell that you can pick in. Uh, and um, yeah, the list just goes on. And as you said, you can select probably like six brilliant teams out of all the, t- the players you played with and against. We didn't even include many of the Saravan guys in your dream team as well. Do you think Gomez Cora, that guy killed us in, I mean, he killed us in Hong Kong one year. Just with a f- stupid move, because if you play in the, in, the, in the C1 side, on the left-hand side of the scrum, for them, us on the right-hand side, your sweeper had to be on the, uh, on the right-hand side of the scrum. He's got so much distance to cover to sweep, and these passes, they knew it. So, flat ball, flat ball to 12, <laughs> boom, rubber through. Oh, everyone's chasing. Sweeper's not there. Because your defensive line, once they go flat attack, they have to wait for these guys. They have to sit. Once they sit, bang, 
kick. They scored three tries like that. Every scrum in the corner like that, bang, three tries. We couldn't answer that. Done. So all these guys, just brilliant minds. And luckily, these guys are coaches and just giving back to the game. And the sad thing about it is that I wish unions would just contribute a bit more funding to sevens. Get better quality guys, better quality guys or just have access to better quality guys. Also, just promote. I mean, what I love about the U.S. system is just the domestic season. I wish we had something like that back home. So we don't have that. Just to get more guys sharpen up, get more coaches to the game. Coaches also to be a bit more open-minded. Say, hey, listen, this is my coaching style. This is what I have. This is the blueprint. Use and abuse. I mean, uh, barring the lingo, keep the lingo for yourself or whatever you want to name it because we do the same things that Canadians do and the uh, Americans do. It's just a lingo change because once it's first weekend on a video, everyone's copying the same thing. It's just how you adapt to that. What's the individual things you can work on and then pretty much a bit of tactics. But yeah. Yeah, when I look back at, at the guys that played the most tournaments or top finishers and all that, and I just feel so privileged to have been on the field and got beat by all those guys. <laughs> but uh <laughs> Yeah, so many legends like Uali Mai and obviously Gallings. Uh, just the list to go on and on and on. How do you how do you even pick a tournament team half the time? That, that's that's the hard part of it all. Yeah, it's 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 insane because like guys always ask me like, who's the guy you aspire to? Uh, which guy did you look up? Who's the legend that you looked up? It's just impossible because there's so many good players with so many good attributes. You have a guy like Damo Damo. I mean, his fingers were all busted, but that guy could catch a ball a meter higher than what a pod could lift. I mean, and that's, the Fijian boys the same. I mean, you have Humphrey Kayenge, uh, same thing. That guy can finish and he can run a score and he will do the same thing three times in a row. You have guys like Danny Barrett on the circuit. A lot of fans of the US guys in, in this case because they just become so much more mature, so much more clever players. And I mean, just in the past, I mean, you had Wally Mai with Lolo Louie, that com combination. And then you had uh, Trevor Arnas with uh, Ala Forti. And then uh, Fausaliba. And then you have all this mix, guys. I mean, geez, every battle would just be insane. The Islanders, back in the day when I started, when you have Fiji-Samoa lineup, and there was a 2010, I think, where Samoa won the year that circuit, where they won that series. It was just each game, either New Zealand or, or Fiji. It's, it's just locking horns all day long. England at that time also had a lot of success under Ben Ryan and Simon Amor, the tactician as well. So you have all these good coaches. You have all these good players. So it's, it's pretty hard to pick a set guy. I mean, even Canada, for that matter, has a lot of good guys that, that I used to rate. I mean, Nathan Iriyama, uh, those guys are just top of their ball. When you used to play them back in the day, these guys were sharp. I mean, sometimes unlucky with a squad, maybe a co combination of players or just a mix around or just the bounce of the ball. I mean, how many times are we just winning with the bounce of the ball? It's not even because they were you were the better team. You weren't the better team. You were just lucky. So yeah, it's, it's, it's sometimes. And the referees as well. So um, probably sevens didn't, and I don't want to step on toes or anything else. But you, we don't probably now is different. But back in the day, we didn't get the best pick of refs. So you got away with murder sometimes. I mean, uh, if you if you go back into the, the tournament we won in in Glasgow, I think where we beat Australia with that comeback. I mean, I literally stole the ball from the Aussies on the other side and then uh, and just put it between our guys' legs because I was under the impression, hey, these guys are falling over the ball. It's a penalty, so let me just steal it and just put it on our side. And then we started to score the try to win it, but. Um, that's the stuff you kind of got away with. Nowadays, it's just a bit harder, so a lot harder. And you have to be so much more smarter because there's so much new rules. So it's hard to pick a team that stands out because you could probably put four or five teams there that can counter those teams. And the camera work is a lot better these days too. There's just yeah. cameras, cameras everywhere, and replays and reviews and all that. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm only going to lay on the, the thicker questions now for you. 
Yeah. Who are some of your funnier roommates on tour and why? Man, luckily he wasn't my roommate because I would have probably killed him and I would have probably been in jail by now. But it's probably Chris Dry. We have a bunch of clowns on that team uh, or when I was still playing. I mean, we used to go on tour and then we used to like pick alliances <laughs> just because you protected in your group because then at least because everyone knew who was the pranksters and the guys were like full pranks. I mean, there was a hammer we took from a field in Adelaide one year, like a four-pound hammer. It just, it just ended up in a bag. Everywhere you go through airport security, just in someone's backpack, and you had to carry the hammer with. I mean, I remember one night, but Chris Dry would probably be the guy I would have killed long ago if he was my roommate, but he's probably one of the funniest guys. He's pretty much the life of the party. And he can, he can take a prank as well. So a lot of things that I can't say and can't tell about, nothing like bad, but like not appropriate for podcasts. But uh, one night I remember, so our Fijo, Hugh Everson, I mean, he's probably the most capped, Blitzbock, like if you take the staff and players combined. So he used to prank the guys as well. So one night he's in Hong Kong, I will never forget that he took lemon, uh, these little lemon meringue pies or tarts or whatever you call them. And then uh, and, and the Black Oaks and our team have this like pretty much of a ritual. They have to like lotion themselves up and put like body lotion on and everything just before bed just to get the skin like that perfect texture and, and sparkle and everything else. So these guys bathed and rubbed their cream on and then one guy climbed into bed and he laced these little tarts underneath their feet and by their legs. <laughs> and these guys squashed that stuff between their toes and on their legs and they were like, oh man, who's this, who's that? No, no, no. So they went to the, the fissure who actually did it and they asked him like, hey, who did it? And he was like, no, Frankie did it. Definitely Frankie. I saw him come out of your room and I'm like, no. So these guys, four or five guys he did it to stormed to my room. And I'm just like, nah, boys. No, 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 no. I, I would do a lot of things, but I wouldn't do that to you guys. Not me. No, no. <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm a church-going person. I wouldn't do that type of stuff. But in any case, so I was like, no, no, no. This, this can't go. So the management had a meeting that same night. So uh, I, I, I went to all the guys. In Hong Kong, Dallin, you should remember, they had these like still solid alarm clocks made of wood. Part of that what was that hotel that we lived in, the Marco Polo. So I took, I went to random, all the rooms. I like even asked, I think I asked the Frenchies for their alarm clock. I said, hey, like, just give me your clock. And they were like, why? I said, just give me the clock, man. It's, it's like, you're going to use it. He's like, no. So I said, just give me the clock then. <laughs> so I put these clocks and everywhere in the room I could find, like under, uh, in the manhole, above the aircon vent, behind his headboard, window, everything else. So this guy comes back at two o'clock in the morning and he's like, he wakes up because he goes sleep late, but like two o'clock is first alarm. So he said he woke up and he heard this like, cheap cheap like a bird that matching this noise so he walks to the window and sees this and the bird's not here and then he goes to the passageway and he's the bird's not there and he goes the, and then he actually found it coming from the aircon so he got on the chair got the alarm off that's like half past two any case a next alarm goes three o'clock behind the headboard next alarm goes four o'clock by five o'clock this guy was over life eh? six o'clock i gave him from the hotel a, a wake-up call <laughs> he tells the lady yeah man i'm already awake since two o'clock <laughs> so yeah Mr. Everson our official he was quite one of the pranksters but I think best guy Chris Dry I mean yes we the, the, the biggest fights not actual fights but just play fights ensue because of that guy just doing random stuff man uh, comes down shaves his legs shaves his armpit hair whatever he wants to shave and just chucks it in your bed clean wrap or your toilet seat steals your socks yeah man a, a tumble dryer can't steal as many socks as that guy can steal. And then he would just cover it up. Whatever your number was, number three would turn into dry. <laughs> so yeah, pretty much Chris is probably the funniest guy just because he can take a prank and also can pull a lot of pranks. Um, Philip Snyman, I wouldn't exclude him from that, that group. So yeah, Quaha and Vanderkok. I mean, one day the Fijo gave them hell. 
So these guys just decided, hey, man, enough is enough. They picked up a dead pigeon and chucked it in the medical bag. <laughs> the next Monday, we got back to training as just maggots and flies. Eh? <laughs> so, yeah, Oaks, Oaks have their full, but, yeah, I think Chris Dry would take, take the note there. Uh, these are some of the best stories we've heard about touring, so really appreciate you shredding them. We'll, uh, we'll give them a shout-out to line, you know. All right, switching gears, Frankie. So how did you get your start in coaching, and what was that transition like from player to coach? Man, I wasn't meant to go into coaching. I was actually prepping myself to go into being a, a, a professional hunter or, or hunting guide, farm manager, everything else, life set up for that. And uh, I went into a, a, a trip just as a consultant to uh, Mauritius, just for a small little schools tournament. And then the guys from Tiger Rugby reached out, Paul Holmes from Tiger Rugby reached out and he was like, hey, and he's, I fairness to him, he's always reached out throughout my whole playing career, always trying to connect and keep up. And uh, Paul was like, hey, listen, do you want to come over for camps? I'm trying to get you into, uh, just see if you can contribute. And all just, he was a fan. Uh, also being a South African, I'm just trying to latch onto that. And then Paul got me over for my first stint with Tiger. And then it was pretty much downhill from there. I just like the whole thing, giving back to Sevens, helped out Tiger and started Tiger Africa. And then eventually moved over to, to SAS, Stellenbosch Academy of Sport. I think that was a great move for me um, just because of SA Sevens is based at SAS. So working with them, Academy is endorsed by SA Rugby. Uh, we've got strong ties with them, trying to help out, but we're not close to the rest of the world. I had a couple of players from abroad. You sent me Peyton, uh, Robin. Peyton was a good, Oscar Dennis from Kenya was with me. Uh, a couple of guys so just trying to help guys in seven so that i think that was my biggest thing when i just made that shift was just the passion to work with, with players and also just it's not so much just about the coaching side of it but i just wanted to get players to, to experience a glimpse of what i had in my playing career if i could get a player to be a better player at the end of the day and reach just his capacity or just to be the best version of himself goal achieved whether it's in his personal life whether it's in rugby whatever he wants to achieve and through the program or wherever he wants to go I mean I'll, I'll help a guy it's um, been privileged enough and, and fortunate enough to see a lot of the world meet some interesting and cool people like yourselves and just keep good connection with these guys and I mean both of you guys know the wonderful world of rugby is how many links you follow how many people you're connected to new friendships everything else so it's, it's just pretty cool Frankie, can you tell us what an average day looks like at the academy and average day, average week for, for your athletes? Average day um, starts for me at four o'clock in the morning. Uh, I live a little bit of a way of Stellenbosch, so I have to commute a little bit. But then, yeah, hit, hit jump early in the morning, be there at like five, just after five, or go and do work opens up and then I uh, get my training done. And then the boys starts at six, six to seven, morning shake-up and medicals. So then that's breakfast. And then after that injury report, so then the guys after morning shake-up, they would go to, um, straight after breakfast, they would go to injury report, then all the niggles, everything else listed. And then we'd have our first team meeting of the morning, every morning. Uh, say, let's just take a Monday morning. We'll have a team meeting or video meeting, explain the rest of the week to them, run through the whole process, what's happening this week, what what phase we are in, everything else, show some video clips or stuff we want to work in on that day or that week. Mondays are normally your easier phasing weeks or days just because guys are coming back straight from a weekend. You can't push them in a red straight on a Monday. It's setting yourself up for trouble. And then a Tuesday would be a bit harder day. Wednesdays are normally, uh, then we uh, just recap, refresh, get a little back. Then you'll have probably like two, three sessions uh, on a Monday. Probably have lunch just because there's so many programs at SAS running. I think it's six rugby programs running from the SA7s Academy, Women's. The SA20 program is based there. SAS, the 15s program and the 7s program. And at a point, Western Province Institute was also based there. So we had a, we had a fair couple of programs running there. Uh, that's excluding the other stuff. So we have a lunch a bit earlier and then, and then we normally have field sessions or individual sessions or unit skill sessions after that. Normal day, we finish like at uh, 3.30, 4 o'clock, full day of rugby. 
Tuesdays are a bit more jacked up with two more field sessions added in the mix, except excluding the individual stuff and unit skills. Wednesday is normally an off day, but a unit skills day normally. Guys who do their kickers, I would probably get a consultant in because I'm world-renowned for my kicking. So... Um, <laughs> so I need to get someone in to help me with the kicking because I'm suck at that. Yeah, also the guys that need extra work-ons, whether it's gym, rehab, slots, a little bit of conditioning, uh, off-beat sessions. And then the rest of the Wednesday is off. And then a Thursday is a jacked-up day. Thursday is double red blocks or double D sessions normally. Push the guys in red. Also start like at 7 in the morning or a bit earlier, depending if we have early birds. Early birds starts at 6. And then uh, we finish at 3.34. And then Fridays are normally a bit... Easy, not easier days. There's a hard conditioning days and off-field off -field skill set or off-field cardio. And then uh, we finish a little bit off. And then normally weekends, if we don't play tournaments or matches, then our weekends are off in general. So guys have pretty much two and a half days of rest in a full week just because the loads are just too high if you continue full load. So that is pretty much a set week. And then we run in two and a half week blocks just because we figured out if you go for three weeks or longer, sometimes you have to. In general, if you run more than those phases, then guys start breaking down the soft tissue injuries, all that type of stuff. So, so we don't want to try and just get the loads up. And then also we work in phases and conditioning blocks. So guys start early in Jan. And then uh, we try and prep these guys before the end of May. And just because for the foreigners, they go back to their respective clubs and summer. Also summer series on some of the boys and clubs that I work with in the US, they take players, then try and get to nationals. And then the boys get a bit of experience, whether it's in the UK, the US, wherever they go. And the local boys in Canada, they go back to their respective seasons and these type of things. So yeah, um, that's pretty much what a set week looks like. And then also in these blocks. And then if we have a tournament week, I think Joe. Germany came over last year for camps. This year was a bit mixed because of the Olympics. So everyone was prepping for the Olympics and that camps in Napoli and all these things. But we had a couple of international teams there. France Development came. But last year we had a bit more jacked up. Ireland was here. Germany was here. Everyone just went conditioning camps and prep. France Development, Uruguay. So we try and get these guys in good competition. Play the local universities. Play against SA Sevens Academy. Give the guys some good exposure to try and move up and down. Also the foreigners, they get a hell of an experience because now they get to play against guys that they see on the circuit. So yeah, we just try to build up. Also trying to help out SS7's ladies. So we play against a lot of shadow rugby against them or chuckers just to get them up to scratch. Just try and give them that better competition, get a bit of run through that they work on their stuff a bit more. So helping out Paul Delp with these guys as well. So yeah, that is pretty much what a standard week looks like and the program looks like. Well, you touched on Peyton Eager, who we sent over there. And uh, I'm, I'm back on the coast with Peyton. So at the end of, end of the summer, I run a camp uh, on Vancouver Island and I had 60, 70 kids from across the country there. And Peyton, as you know, is a quiet guy, tough young Canadian boy. But I had each of the athletes there. We had some of the, the World Series men and women there helping coach as well. And I had Peyton share his experience of, of your program. And I've never, I've never actually heard him speak so much. And he opened up about the type of training he did and just the standard that you build within your program, within your athletes. And it was amazing, just eye-opening for these Canadian kids to see where the level's at and, and the standard that you're raising them to. So he had an incredible experience on the field, certainly off the field, being in South Africa, as well as interact uh, with, with the young men in your program. And he had nothing but uh, wonderful things to say about you and, and his experience. And I'll definitely be sending you a few more uh, young Canadians to make men out of. So it's good to hear that. Um, I mean, a fun fan of Pate, the Lego hand as we call him, but you can ask him in your private capacity. <laughs> yeah, the, the boy is good. Uh, a gifted player. I wish he had a bit more opportunities to play, but I think he's in the Pacific Pride program, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. Yeah, we got him involved with the U23 Canada program and he's he's earning his way day to day and hopefully once this, this COVID-19 gets under wraps and uh, then he'll get back in the mix but uh, yeah I'm a big fan of his as well so one of the last questions I have for you can you just tell us about Frankie Horn's coaching philosophy 
what are your values and principles? Funny enough, um, David Mobs from the Rambling Jesters, I hosted him for, but I had a chat with him two days ago. Always exchange like philosophies and stuff and his philosophy. And I don't really have a coaching philosophy, to be honest. I just want players to be the best version of themselves. Try and see how far they can actually go. We all know each guy has a limit. Each player has a limit. You, you could be a good I'm taking now an SA7's terms, uh, or let's speak US terms then. You could be a good club player at D2 level, but you can't crack the knot in D1. You could be a good D1 player, but it can't mean you can crack the knot at MLR. That's the same thing here. You have certain guys that can go certain levels, and it's not made for everybody. It's a brutal honesty and truth, but you try and get that guy to the best version of himself. So that's why I try and boost these guys psychologically. I boost them, make them strong emotionally, physically, uh, physiologically. Everything I can get them better at, make them more mature. It's something I've worked with Pate on a little bit, just to be hard on Pate. Pate never gave up, just to take him as a classic example. But he used to get upset quite quickly uh, with certain things. I mean, I'd, one day he couldn't do pull-ups and he started punching the, the pull-up rack. <laughs> and we are like, no, man, you're going to break your fist. I said, it's just... But any case, that's the type of player he is just because he gets upset with not getting that performance. And it's not bad. It's not bad. Each guy just needs to reach that limit. You always try to get these guys to be better off. I mean, five months is very short to work with players in the bigger scheme of things. But it's, it's long enough to change... A lot of little things make them more mature, make them more dependent. Once you put them in that dark place and you just want to bend them but not break them, just far enough that they can see, well, if I fight out of this, I'll be better. And then every day, that'll be your benchmark or your parameter for that's the toughest session I've ever done. And once you put that as your reference point, then every session of that becomes easier because, ah, then even if you go further, because the further guys get, the harder they can push. I mean, we've all been there. There is some stuff which is just like madness and some coaches sometimes just do stuff just for the sake, whether it's to get them psychologically stronger or me mentally, physically, doesn't really matter. But each guy has a thing. I don't really, I just want guys to be the best version of themselves. Give them all the knowledge and experience I have and acquired and the new stuff I learn and new trends and everything else. Just put more tools in their toolbox so hopefully when they get that job, they can, they have the tools to do the job. So and that's that. And also just help them for a little bit after life. I mean, some guys come into the program, broken homes, just need a figure, father figure, just a mentor, just need that, not even that, they just need that whoop, but just keep cracking behind them just to get them that extra push. And once these guys see that they actually can do this and become better at it, then they start loving it. They're owning it. And that's, that's the only gratitude I want. I just want to see my products and the guys I've worked with just excel. And coaches I have my hand on, I learn from them. I learn from all you guys and exchanging ideas. Robin, you would know, we chat quite frequently. Same thing with mobs and all these guys. You exchange ideas with coaches and see what works for him. What works for mobs might not work for me. It also depends on the quality of athletes you have. That's the biggest thing I've learned in the U.S. was just like working with a society like guys from all the Polynesians, but uh, guys from different regions in the world. I mean, you can't come with a set South African mindset because the boys we have, we can just, hey, you do that or you don't and threaten them and push them and break them. And then they would go because that's just, they've been exposed to that all their lives. Now you go to the U.S., you can't have that same coaching mentality there. So you need to adapt and change your, your model everywhere. Robin, you guys would know as well. Uh, and you would go with uh, British Council stuff and Premiership stuff. You, you you get in touch with so many guys, and you have to be adaptable as a coach as well. You have your your fixed measures, which stuff which we, you you won't compromise on because that's just a standard and that's just a norm. But some things you can you can uh, vary. Uh, I mean, my my guys, everyone has had my hand. They know I'm 
not just a drill sergeant or something. I'm a friend and I'm a, I'm a coach. I, uh, when we have fun, we have fun. But when we work, we work. And that's just a standard. Like we would joke all the time. But when it's time to graph and put the, put the hammer down, then that's what we do. And, then, and the guys see that after time they'll buy in and they'll go. And the quicker they buy in, the quicker they'll go. Um, and that's kind of where, where my mind is at with coaching and helping. Everyone's IP is everywhere. So you can't keep everything just closed in a box because it'll either end up on social media or the products that you had would go out to the world and preach that stuff in any case. It's like, so you just need to give the guys all the tools that they can probably acquire and just, okay, there you go. You, you, you can do this. Well, Frank, it's so impressive what you're doing that side and uh, we're all massive fans. Final question from me, my friend. What were some of your major sporting influences growing up? I, I didn't set my sights on any one specific guy. As the, as the saying goes, uh, your idol is your idol till the day you meet him because then you find out there's something you don't like about this guy. I take multiple attributes from a lot of guys. I mean, if you, I mean, just watching Stevens, there's so many guys that's so good at it. You take what this guy's attribute. Uh, I meet a guy like Robin. He's humble as can be. Uh, you take that. You take a guy like yourself, talent, entertaining and fun. Just take that, but positivity always. You just build it up. And as player, you all had a bit of idols. I mean, growing up, it wasn't hard to pick an idol. You see one guy step someone or bump someone on the weekend, then you become that guy. And then the next touch rugby session, you, you're that guy. <laughs> But then at the end of the day, you actually, once you play the game long enough, you either or excel, you either meet these guys at some point. I didn't take attributes. I take a lot, a little bit of knowledge from everyone. A guy that I meet, uh, he's got a likable attitude. This guy's very confident. You take that bit of confidence back. I have to say, um, a guy like DJ Forbes, uh, I mean, just take him as a classic example. I mean, that guy was the benchmark of sevens back then. When I started, take a guy like Stephen Yates. He was actually a winger in 15s. Uh, Tim Mickelson, same thing. But these guys have a work rate second to none. I mean, Stephen Yates was the benchmark back then when Titans was there just to be tighted, just because of his return to play. That guy would just be everywhere, but taking in mind, he was a winger. <laughs> so, um, but you, you all learn these little things from each different player. I mean, a uh, uh, positive attitude and just being humble. I mean, you're going to get stepped. You're going to get bumped. You're going to get burned. I mean, the first time I got toe-to-toe with Perry Baker, he just smiled with a five-meter gap, and I was like, oh, not now. Come on, man. And shoof, gone. <laughs> and then I was like, man, I'll get you to rock some point. But in any case, the game is so short. And like I said earlier on, it's like the end of your career is one tackle away. Uh, it's, it's you meet so many people and just be privileged enough to ride the journey and ride that wave for as long as you can. And once you get off the wave, then it's done. High five afterwards. And hopefully you made the best out of that wave. But yeah, that's pretty much that. I never aspired to take one specific guy. There's so many people that had so many cool little things about them and you just take all that and chuck it in a bag. Well, I just want to say it's just been so much fun speaking to you and taking a trip down memory lane uh, with a man that's stronger than Miley Cyrus wrecking ball. Bye, donkey, Frankie, for being on the Rugby Hive. Thanks, guys. Yeah, I really appreciate yeah. the chat. It's good to see you guys. Yeah, Beautiful ball around the top. Yes, Thank you for listening, you sleek sensations. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Rugby Hive Podcast and catch us on all the socials at Rugby Hive. We appreciate your support. Be safe out there and we'll see you soon.